Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. Welcome to Pax Britannica, a talk where Elizabeth Anson tells us about the role of the Royal Navy in the 19th century. I said the other day that what I was going to do was say the good things about the empire. The whole point about this talk is it's not about the empire, it's about the peace that the British Navy kept for the whole of the 19th century. So really one has to start with this peace in 1815, but even before 1815, because the last bit of war was really with America, of all things. And the last real battle in the American War of 1812 was the battle between the Shannon and the Chesapeake. The reason I'm interested, those who've read O'Brien's books, there's one book entirely on this, and one of the interesting things there was that the Americans beat the British Navy left, right, and center until the Shannon and the Chesapeake, the Shannon being uh, the British ship and the Chesapeake being the American ship in Boston Harbor, had a great battle, and the Chesapeake blew up. And that was the last battle, really, at sea of the 1815 peace. What I'm also interested in it is that I went to Boston about 10 years ago, and I went round Boston Harbor, and nobody in the ship, our ship had any idea that 2012 was the duocentenary, or whatever it's called, bicentenary, of the war against America. But everybody in America knew all about it. And the whole of Boston Harbor, they were telling us how this, the president and the different ships there had all beaten the British, and now they were doing this and that. And I said quietly, what about the Shannon and the Chesapeake? Oh, says this great big boatman, are you trying to start an argument with me, lady? <laughs> anyway, that was the end of that sort of war. How I'm dividing this up is I'm actually starting before 1860. The reason we had to have 1860 is because it's our theme. And our theme today is 1860. And 1860 is really the beginning of steam engines. But it started before that because what we were actually doing, we were trying hard to look after our people. We needed trade. We needed trade for work. We needed trade to buy food. We needed trade for all sorts of things. And the trade piece actually started in 1815 after the Congress of Vienna. Because at the Congress of Vienna, we had to return some of the bases we had actually captured in the war, but we kept the Cape of Good Hope, Mauritius, Seychelles, and also, in order to safeguard the route to India, Ceylon, Malacca, Penang, and the West Indies, St. Lucia and Tobago. And we kept those in order to get to, to India, and because India was what was so important in our trade, because we, we sold things to India, and they sent us cotton. Anyhow, Britain had control of the seas, but not necessarily with the Navy. Cochrane came out of the Navy, and he went off to South America, and with one ship, he helped to free Chile and Peru. And as you will probably know, he's well known still in Chile. And Codrington, with the British Navy, 
helped the Greeks against the Turks in 1827. So we were going out into the world to help people as much as we could. We didn't actually have an empire until the 1870s, but for the rest of the 19th century, trade was the important thing, and we, we almost had an empire by mistake. We kept having these stations all over the world, so we later refueled, not so much in the early days because it was all sale, and we were trying to get everybody to trade with us, and when they wouldn't trade with us, we took over their ports, and having taken <laughs> taken over their ports, we then took over a bit of the land around their ports. The thing we were really working on, particularly after the 1830s, is to stop the slave trade, because we had stopped the slave trade, but the Americans hadn't and the French hadn't. All sorts of other people were still doing the slave trade. In the 1830s, the, the ruler of Burma refused to do something that we wanted and put some of our traders into prison. So we immediately attacked Rangoon, as it was called then, and we went up the river capturing Rangoon. Now the admiral, uh, who, who was with us capturing Rangoon in 1834, was Admiral Alston. Now you all know about Admiral Alston. He had a sister called Jane, who lived down the road. And we always have this great story in our family about it because Admiral Austin's young officers rather wildly went and took a Tibetan brass bell, a great big bronze bell, out of one of the temples, took it to Admiral Austin's house in Rangoon and set it up in under a little barasti hut. When we left Burma, I mean the British left Burma, the bell went to Trincomalee in Sri Lanka, as it now is. Then we left Sri Lanka and the bell went to Aden, and it was the sitting under the Barasti hut in the senior naval officer's garden. And when we left Aden, the bell went to Bahrain. Now, my husband was commodore in Bahrain in the 70s, and outside our house was the bell, with a thing on the top saying, this belonged to Admiral Austin. I said, you do realise that's Jane Austen's brother, Oh, says my husband, really, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, when we left Bahrain in 1971, he sent the bell back to the store at Portsmouth, and he said on it, it's Jane Austen's brother. But nobody in the store in Portsmouth took the slightest notice of that, and it was just chucked in that corner. I went to Jane Austen's house in Chawton, and they had a picture of a sailor in Trincomalee beside the bell, written to his mother saying, I know you're a great Janeite fan, this bell belonged to her brother. And so I said, do you know where that bell is to the Chalton people? And they said, no, never heard of it. Would you like it? It's sitting in Portland. <coughs> yes, they said, we'd love it. So we went back to the first sea lord at the time who lived in Headley, Admiral Ashmore, who was a great supporter of Jane Austen, and said, very nice letter, can we possibly give the bell to Chawton. He didn't tell us anything, but I happened to go over to Chawton a bit later, and I found the bell sitting there, and I said, when did, you, when did you get the bell? Oh, he said, one day in the lane outside, a huge lorry came, and on the back of it was this bell, and the chief petty officer jumped out and said, I've got a bell for you. <laughs> and we said, what bell? And they said, I don't know, but it's all for you. <laughs> So they put the bell in the garden because they couldn't move it. 
And if you go to Jane Austen's house now, and you go into the room which is called the Admiral's Room, you'll find the bell sitting in the fireplace. <laughs> now, we also, before the 1860s, had started the wars in China, uh, because we wanted trade in China. This is before the Opium Wars. We wanted to trade in China. And that's the first time, really, that the Navy used paddle steamers because paddle steamers were very good up the, the Yangtze and the different rivers. Talk later about the whole change of, from sail to turbines and things like that. At this time, in the 1840s, the British Navy was not keen on having anything to do with steam because it meant you couldn't have lovely guns all around the outside of your ship. And paddle steamers also upset the whole gunnery. But in the Chinese War, they did use them. Meanwhile, because of the slave trade, we needed, we tried to have peace. But the slave trade, just to go back to the slave trade, one of the things about the slave trade was that it wasn't only getting from Africa off to America, but it was also Tanzania and Zanzibar. And we had huge fights over slavery in that area. And the British Navy tried to stop the slavery there. It's quite interesting, in the 1970s, when the new ruler had taken over Oman and Muscat, called Kwabus, who died the other day, I met him and he said, do you know what happens? Everybody in England keeps writing to me and saying, I must release all my slaves. And so I said, are you going to relieve your slaves? Well, he said, it would be so unkind. If I have slaves, I've got to look after them in their old age and their babies and everything. There's no social services, but I look after the slaves. If they're freed, there'll be nobody to look after them. He had, did actually later free his slaves. Basically, the other thing with slaves is the Algiers. The, the north coast of, of the Mediterranean was an absolute din of slavery over through Algiers and, and that part. And the French and the British together in the 1820s cleared the pirates out of Algiers and, and released all the slaves who were there. The trade with India was important. The actual fleet going to India was the East India Company that had their own ships, and it was not necessarily in the British Navy. Uh, East India Company ruled India until the mutiny in the 1850s, and then they took over. What was needed was bases for the fleet and the merchant ships. And then after the Congress of Vienna, when they, we had certain bases, we then later got Singapore in 1819, Aden in 1839, Hong Kong in 1842, Cocos in 1857, Fiji in 1874, Zanzibar in 1890, which was a, an agreement with Germany, which was later swapped for Heligoland, Wei Highway in 1898, and Australia, 1788, New Zealand, Auckland, 1841. There were local wars all over the world uh, with British. We were fought the Maoris, we had the Indian Mutiny, and we disciplined traders when they were places were unkind, like Burma. And in China, in 1840, with the Treaty of Nanking in 1842, we took over special rights in the ports of Canton, Amon, Shanghai, and Fuchao, and we had Hong Kong ceded to us. So all these places were, and later there was the Boer War, which we'll go to later. Naval ships were in those days the diplomats, they were the foreign office. 
They went round the world supporting peace and trade and the missionaries, and they used their sailors to do fighting on land. One of the interesting ones is that we have, well, we've actually we've sold it, we've had the letters that were passed between my husband's great-great-grandfather, Captain Wicker Martin, who was in the Caribbean in the 1850s and 60s, and he was in correspondence with Garibaldi. He was saying to Garibaldi, the British Navy will not stop you landing in Italy if you go back to free Italy. And he said, thank you very much. He then went back and landed in Sicily, and the French said to the British, shall we stop Garibaldi landing? And the British said, no, we've promised we won't stop him landing. So all this foreign office discipline was going on all over the world by the actual captains of ships in the Navy. And they, even in the Boer War, they had to use the sailors to bring up the guns because the army was so useless at that time. We then come to really the beginning of our period, which was the Crimean War. On the whole, Britain kept out of European politics. They could do this because Victoria, because of the Salic law, was not allowed to be the elector of Hanover, and her uncle became the elector of Hanover, and so she didn't want to meddle with European politics. In the past, in the 18th century, the Britain government was always harassed by the kings to say, you've got to help us because of Hanover. But in the 19th century, they didn't have to worry about Hanover. And all sorts of things happened in Europe in 1848 and other times, and later Franco-Prussian wars, and we had nothing to do with it. And so we kept out of European politics. Anyhow, the Pax Britannica about this was the sea for the world. It not only helped our trade, it also helped the trade of the Dutch and the Danes and a lot of other people, but particularly the Dutch and the Danes. The British Navy at that time was mostly in sail, but in the Crimean War, the Russians, the first thing they did was to defeat the Turks completely. They sank the whole of the Turkish fleet, and we came into that war because of friendships. The Navy had to cart all the troops over there. The Navy also fought some battles up in the Baltic, but in that time, that's the 1850s, all the admirals were desperately, desperately old, just like Admiral Alston was in his 70s in Burma. And my great-great-great-uncle, who was called uh, Admiral Peart, who has a memorial in Exeter, was Admiral of the White. He was well over 70 when he was Admiral of the White. Everybody was so old because there was no retirement allowed, and we went in by seniority. And so we made a complete mess, basically, in the Crimea, in the Black Sea, and we made a complete mess up in, the, up in the Baltic. And the French produced a ship. The Gloire was the first armoured steamship produced in war. And it was a French ship, and it was called the Gloire. And it was very effective. So the British Navy kept thinking, we now must do something about our ships, because that has happened. Basically, but the reason for the Crimean War was, again, the old story, we were worried about Russia coming down to India, the whole business of the Afghan situation. Now, meanwhile, the empire grew, and in the 1870s, Disraeli had said to the Queen, your friends in Germany are now empires, the Russians are empires, the Austrians are empires, wouldn't you like an empire too? 
And so she said, yes, please. I'd love an empire. I just really gave her an empire. And that, after that, we became an empire, but we hadn't before. Now, the aim was still for Britain to be a universal trader and a missionary of religious and democratic ideas. In order to safeguard our trade, we had the Chinese Opium Wars in the 1856, and the Chinese Squadron was existed in 1864, and in 1863 and 4, Japan uh, opened up. In 1861, we annexed Lagos because of the slave trade. That's why we went to, into Nigeria, the slave trade. In 1890, spheres of influence with Germany were arranged in order to suppress slavery in the old Zanzibar Empire, and Germany had Tanganyika, and Britain had Kenya, Uganda, and Zanzibar, as I said, which later got swapped for Heligoland. What else did we do in that empire? We educated people. We helped with the princes in India, and we tried to work with locals. We gave jobs to locals. We, in India particularly, we did a lot of things with their transport and things. My family were in Jessops, which was the big in company in India, which was later nationalized by the Free Indian Germany, that produced all the railway equipment, all the lines and all the carriages and all the engines, and shipped them out to, to India to make... If anybody's travelled in India by train, it's lovely. What else did we do during that time when we were keeping the peace? We had the hydrographer. We, had, we actually mapped nearly the whole world. The British Navy, wherever it went, mapped, mapped things. Also, all British ships, and lately all other ships, every day put a bucket of water into the sea and took the temperature of the sea. And in 1990, when the, the climate change people were really going fast out, I went to Green College and I said, you know, you said all the, the temperature of this and the temperature of that. How do you take the temperature of the sea? Oh, he said, the Navy takes the temperature of the sea. I said, still in the same way, with the bucket they drop in and pull out every day? Well, I suppose so, but that's how we take the temperature of the sea. And I said, well, you, what you ought to be doing is doing it by satellite. And I talked to some satellite people at Farnborough a couple of years later, because my husband was in satellite, and I said to them about this, and they said, oh, yes, we started satelliting the, the temperature of the sea in 1992, 93, and by 2003, we can give you the real reasons of the temperature of the sea. Before that, it's absolutely useless to, to look at the figures because it's only buckets dropped into the water. <laughs> uh, apart from the hydrography, which was so good, they explored lots of places. You were, those of who have the Times would have seen on Saturday the article about the Erebus, and I, some of you might have read the book about Erebus. Erebus went to the Northwest Passage with Sir John Franklin in 1847 and was lost. And there's a lot of talk about how they were lost and when they were found, and they've now just found a whole lot more, and they're trying to work it out. In the book on Erebus, they reckon they actually had lead poisoning by the bad initial tin food in the ships, and that's probably one of the reasons they died. In 1876, Sir John Ross and William Parry went out, Mungo Park was in Africa, and then later Captain Scott was in Antarctica. All these things were done because there was a peace across the world. Now we go to how they kept the peace. What was the situation with the actual ships? 
The, the British were very fond of their sailing ships because they were very good at their sailing ships and their sailing ships had worked very well. And for trading purposes and the Pax Britannica, sailing ships were fine because they could go all over the world and they could do all sorts of things. But meanwhile, merchant ships were starting to get single screw. The single screw was invented and in 1838, Brunel's Great Western was launched. In 1840, his Britannia as mail ship. And in 1858, the Great Eastern was built. The Navy didn't like the idea because they didn't have enough armament. But the good old Blois had had armament, so they therefore had to copy it. So the great move in naval things was the warrior. And the warrior was single-screwed and iron-hulled. It went 14 knots and it had a retractable screw. It was longer and faster than the French, and it was the absolute leading thing, and you can all go and see it, because it's sitting at Portsmouth. That's another interesting story. When I was going around the country at local government, I went up to Hartlepool, and Hartlepool had a lot of unemployed people, including a lot of youths who all needed something to do. And so they found the warrior, and they rebuilt the warrior. And they were terribly proud of it. We all went on board the warrior and saw all the wonderful things they'd done to rebuild it. And they wanted to keep it there. But the Labour government at the time said, no, no, you can't have the warrior in Hartlepool. Portsmouth must have it. So they gave the warrior to Portsmouth. And Hartlepool was given another ship. But they always felt very sore about that. The south took over from the north. And the next thing was, how were you going to work out guns? It actually had guns still on the side. And it has masts, so it can still have sails. In the American Civil War, the Americans invented turrets. So you could have turrets on the decks from which to put the guns, and you could still have armament. We then built the devastation in 1873 with turrets. And that was a super ship, and it had the turrets. It worked very well, except it had such a low fleaboard, uh, the water came over and it sank. <laughs> so then what did we go on to then after that to try and get things up speed destroyers were the next things that came the destroyers basically came up because uh, the original mines had been used in the Baltic in the Crimean War then they had torpedoes in 1864 torpedoes had been patented and so we had to have torpedo boats or anti-torpedo boats and that's where the destroyers were built. In 1876, HMS Inflexible, it was, had an iron and it had turrets, but the first iron-clad proper ships were the Admiral class. And the Admiral class was built in 1886. Torpedo boats were carried on the top of other ships. And we had at that time a thing called a cruiser, which was quite small, and it was good for going across the whole empire. And in 1890, we had first, second, and third-class cruisers. They'd been get begun in 1850. They were good for flag-showing because they were big enough to go around, show the flag, and be a diplomat, and for policing. Later, Fisher said they were useless. He, he made battle cruisers, which were later and different. 1893 destroyers were called torpedo boat destroyers, and the first one of those was HMS Havelock, 
which had a triple replicating engine. I'm not practically good on engines, but Mike has said he's very interested in that, so I've got to try and work out all the engines. Uh, the next thing that happened was that in 1895, the French developed steel, and also they did propellants in the guns, so you could have smaller guns and it could move faster in the Admiral class. And the Admiral class, as I said, were all named after admirals and were named Benbow and Rodney and all that sort of thing. Anyhow, the cast steel also had better water tube boilers. And after 1895, all ships built had the same standard water tube boilers. Once we started having steel and boilers and things like that, we had to have coal all over the world. Now, the only coal that really worked for our ships was South Wales coal. And the South Wales coal was ideal. Later in the 1890s, it was discovered that New Zealand coal was just as good. And so we could use New Zealand coal. And of course, when we got on to oil, then there was the great question of going into the Gulf, into the Persian Gulf, because of the oil. And the story goes that particularly Churchill and the Navy generally in the 1900s was keen to have everything in oil because the miners in South Wales kept going on strike and they couldn't get their coal. Then the steam turbines were adopted in, in the ships in 1897 and they built a ship called the Turbina in 1897 and in 1900 they built the Viper which went for 36 to 58 knots, it was so fast. Meanwhile, the great story was, what was the Navy for by the 1890s? Was the Navy, in order to uh, keep Pax Britannica across the world, or was it getting ready for a major fight against another power, in which case they needed battleships and they needed big power, and they would have a big battle like the battles of Trafalgar and things like that? In 1890, an American admiral called Mahan said that the most important thing about naval power is you could only get domination across the world if you had a powerful navy. And not only did America start building up its navy, but Germany started building up its navy, and France started building up its navy, although they just had a war with Germany, so they hadn't sold enough money. That's when everybody started to say what, what was happening in Europe. In 1889, there was a Naval Defence Act. The British Navy must be, in its size, equal to more than two any other powers. At about that time, in the 1890s, Fisher began to be noticed and seen, and he was very worried because he reckoned just to have battleships to fight Germany or France, whatever is in Europe, was not good for the empire. What he wanted the empire was a lot more smaller and more useful ships. And so he created things like the Dreadnought. He, he had Marconi's radio put into all the ships. First they were only put in one or two ships and then for all the way. The French, meanwhile, were having a great fun with uh, submarines. They had a submarine called the Narval in 1899 and we didn't have any submarines at all. So in 1900... We started on submarines, first commissioned H-class, Holland-class, which were built up in Barrow and Furness, as they are now. That had an eight-man crew, and it could go underwater, but not for long, and only in coastal waters, until a chap called 
Christian Bacon, invented periscope. And having invented the periscope, our submarines could go out into the main oceans of the world. And in 1914, we had the most submarines of all the navies. And they had reciprocating engines with turbines using oil. And this affected the policy in Persia. Meanwhile, the heyday of the British Navy was the Diamond Jubilee Review. And they had all the fleet out in the Solent so showing all the wonderful ships in the Navy. The next great review was in 1911-1912 when George V came to the throne. And I always remember uh, an uncle of Peter or cousin of Peter saying to me, you know, when I was a boy, he said, we all went on board. All the, all the aunts and cousins all went on board with some ship because the relation was a, a captain of his ship. But poor old so-and-so, he couldn't. He, though he was a cousin in our age, he had to be a page for the king. <laughs> by the time we've got to 1914, our real problem was that in, by 1900, we got back into Europe. Oh, dear. Uh, what happened was that Edward VII made peace with France, and they had a French organisation, and the French brought in the Russians, and we didn't want the Russians going into India. We felt if we were friends with them and helped them in Europe, they wouldn't go into India. And those of you who are in the Silk Road or talks and reading the Silk Road books will discover that the reason we went into the 1914 war was entirely because we were in those peace treaties and Russia went into the war, and so we went in to help Russia. And the only reason we were anything to do with Russia was because we had European organisations to stop the Russians going into India. But that, that's an opinion. We then come to the fact that we come into the 1900s. The Navy itself had been completely reorganised from having very old admirals right back in the Whig governments of the 1840s and 50s. And they had set up a board of admiralty in 1837 and a scheme for retirement in 1847. And in 1864, the red, white and blue squadron ceased. In 1854, cadets first went into a ship called the Illustrious and later into one called the Britannia, and that moved to Dartmouth in 1863. They set up a gunnery school for expertise in 1891, and Vernon for torpedoes in 1876, and Greenwich Royal Naval College in 1873, and Keam in Plymouth in 1880 for engineers. So they were trying to get into the modern world all during the last years of the 19th century. Then we get to the 19th, to the over 1900, and we come to Fisher. Now, Fisher's aim was to scrap obsolete ships, to reorganise the reserve fleet, introduce a system of fleets so they could be moved all around the world to help the Pax Britannica, a new alignment, a new signs of capital ships. And one of the first things he did was to build the Dreadnought. Now, the Dreadnought was armed better than anything else. The more technical the ships got, it gets worse and worse, because as they get more and more technical, back into the next century, the sailors were still having their rum. And rum in the 1830s was half a pint for a man of rum every day. In the 1830s, that was reduced to a quarter of a pint of rum a day. In the 1850s, it came to an eighth of a pint a day, 
and it stayed at an eighth of a pint a day until 1970, and everybody senior was so grateful because people who'd had their rum were really not co capable of looking after electronic equipment. And we have a couple of rum things at home. We've get, then got to the stage that we've got dear old Fisher and his dreadnoughts. And he said that we needed flotillas with more small ships. And he was thrown out of power, in fact, because he tried to get smaller ships that would go all over. You do appreciate, until the 1870s, most of our ships were sail, and even the ones that had engines also had sails as well. And the merchant ships were still sails. The clipper ships were still going with sails, with a bit of engines to help. Anyhow, the aims of Fisher were to prevent invasion, to secure security of seaborne trade worldwide, and an ability to defeat a foreign navy. And so he created another ship, the battle cruiser. This ship, 1913, was the last battle cruiser built just before war started. And in 1931, I was christened on board. Thank you. <laughs> The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.